Hey everyone, and welcome back to CDY Blackout, your home for the best creators from around the world. I'm your host, Max Bone, and people, I don't know about you, but I love a good movie. You know, whether it's sci-fi or horror or comedy or drama, it's cool to just escape for a couple hours and go into this whole new world. And if you can see a rare movie, well, that's even better. And it's kind of a concept for the book that we're gonna talk about for this episode. This movie is one of a kind. No one knows where it came from, no one knows who made it. The woman depicted is beautiful beyond imagination, and the images, well, hell has nothing on this, my friends. Author Preston Fassell joins me to talk about his recently released book, Beasts of 42nd Street. Preston, welcome to the show. It is so cool to have you here. Thank you for having me. All right. I want to open by just talking about the movie in this book you know i love the concept of this like one-of-a-kind film with all this horrific imagery that everyone for some reason wants to get their hands on without giving too much away of course what can you tell me about the movie so the origins for the movie came from a series of urban legends that i came across while i was researching the book uh i am very invested in making sure that everything i write has a high degree of historical verisimilitude uh, I want somebody who lived in 1970s New York to be able to pick this book up and read it and think to themselves, this guy was there. Uh, I put a tremendous amount of time into researching this book. Uh, part of that was going to a website called City Data, which is basically a giant ask me anything about different American cities. And you can like go to the New York City uh, city data page, or you can go to the Newark or the Oklahoma City or the Waukesha ask me and uh, uh, city data page and just ask people about the town they live in, about the culture there, the history there, yada, yada, yada. And so I went to the New York City City Data page and talked to a bunch of people about their experiences living in New York in the 1970s. And then one of the big foundational pieces of research for me for this book was uh, another book called Sleazewood Express, written by a guy named Bill Landis and his wife, Michelle Clifford. And Bill Landis had lived in early 1980, well, he lived in uh, 1960s to 1980s New York. Uh, had grown up there, come of age there. He founded a magazine in the early 1980s, also called Sleazewood Express, that was dedicated to documenting the grindhouse theaters of 42nd Street and the subcultures that had grown up around them and the people who went there. And one of the things that really jumped out at me uh, when I was initially reading Sleazewood Express were these rumors he talked about in the late 1970s and early 1980s New York there was this pervasive urban legend floating around Times Square that some of the movies being shown in the Grindhouse theaters on 42nd Street were actually satanic in origin and had been made by the devil. And this wasn't some Christian scare propaganda. This wasn't some, like, you shouldn't go see these movies sort of uh, attempt to get people not to go to the theaters. This was the people who were actively going and watching these movies and enjoying them. And they were just like, yeah, I went I went, and I saw this movie today and it was probably made by the devil. And one of the driving factors behind this was one, these, these movies were really inexpensively made and had very upsetting, controversial, violent, very tonally dark content. But the people making them very often did not want other people to know that they had made them because 
a lot of the folks involved had day jobs. They were like living in the suburbs and were like working nine to five corporate uh, positions. Uh, they didn't want their families to know that they were making these sleazy horror movies. And so you would have entire movies. Uh, you, would, you would have movies whose entire credits were all pseudonyms. And there would not be a single real name in the credits. And people would try and track down, okay, I just saw this really gnarly movie. Where did it come from? And people would start trying to dig in and do research. And I can't find the director. I can't find the producer. This person doesn't exist. This person doesn't exist. And out of this grew up these rumors, well, this movie is so upsetting. This movie is so dark. This movie is so disturbing. The devil made it. And so when I was writing this book, I thought it would be interesting to incorporate this urban legend that was uh, such a part of late 70s and early 80s Times Square conspiracy culture, but make it true. And what would it be like? What would it look like? And what would be the repercussions and fallout if there were a movie floating around 42nd Street during this era that actually was made by the devil? That is a wonderful what-if scenario. Now, in doing the research and learning about all these like, Grindhouse movies, were there any that you found particularly disturbing? Not so much disturbing, but there was one movie that was kind of the driving force behind this urban legend. Uh, it's got multiple names, as all of the movies from this era do. Uh, it was marketed as the Cuckoo Clocks of Hell and a couple of other names, but it's most well-known as... The Last House on Dead End Street. And it's about this guy who's like this small-time crook, and he gets sent away to prison on his latest stretch. And when he when he gets out, he decides that he is going to get revenge on society. And the way he's going to do this is by becoming a snuff film manufacturer. And this movie was like the ultimate example of nobody in these credits exist. And uh, every actor involved used to almost every actor involved used a pseudonym and like the same guy wrote, directed it and produced it, but used like three different names. Uh, the, the real guy was a, a guy named Roger Watkins, but he credits himself most notably for his directorial role as Victor Janos. And from this pseudonym springs this idea that Victor Yano, because nobody can find who this Victor Yanos is, and uh, rumors start to spread that the movie isn't actually an American product, it's actually a South American product. Uh, we're, we're going back to a period of intense strife in South America and uh, the, the Contras and Nicaragua, yada, yada, yada. And people are like, well, this movie didn't come from America, it came from Latin America, and Victor Yanos is Satan. And Victor Janos, the devil, like went down to Latin America and made this movie and like actually killed all these people in this movie. And you're like actually seeing real people die in this movie. And that was just the all pervading rumor on 42nd Street for many, many years, even going into the mid to late 1980s. And it really wasn't until we got into the early internet age where more research was possible that people started running things down and were able to locate Roger Watkins and other people involved. And it was like, well, yeah, you know, 20 some years have passed. We can admit it now. We're, we're the people who made Last House on Dead End Street. 
But for the significant portion of time, one of the driving forces behind this urban legend was Last House on Dead End Street. That was not only a big inspiration for the book, but in honor of that, the movie itself actually appears in the book and is a plot point in the story. So you've seen this movie then? Yes. Wow. Uh, Was it hard to get through? No. Things have changed so much. This is something that gets me. Like the other day, my, 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 my brother's in town visiting. And I showed him this movie that I absolutely love. It's this really weird, really crazy, off-the-wall 1970s exploitation film that's called The Psychopath, also known as An Eye for an Eye. It's got multiple production dates on it. One says 72, one says 75. It came out of SoCal. And basically the idea for the film is what if Mr. Rogers were a vigilante serial killer? And the in the movie, this guy who is meant to be Mr. Rogers finds out that one of his biggest fans has been killed in an incidence of child abuse. And he just cracks and decides to become a vigilante killer of abusive parents. And so he runs around SoCal tracking down abusive parents and killing them with machetes and with lawnmowers and beating them to death with baseball bats and strangling them with baby blankets. And it's just like really off the wall. And like, it's great because the person who did the sound design and the music for this movie had to have been strung out of their mind. Like you've got like a scene where this nurse is like talking about statistics of child abuse to a police officer. And it's just like reciting like all of this really terrible stuff in the soundtrack. It's like, it's like every year, 25 children in this city are beaten to death by their own parents. It is an epidemic of abuse. And in the soundtrack is like, and the greatest thing about all of this is the copy that I have of this movie opens with the MPAA rating, PG. (laughs) This was a PG-rated film when it came out. And the reason I bring this up is watching The Last House on Dead End Street today, it's like theoretically upsetting, but the special effects, the acting, the way that it's made, it's just very difficult in a post-hostile, post-Serbian film, post-Saw world to take this very seriously. And what I'm sure was very upsetting for people living in Carter era, gas crisis era, the world is ending 1970s New York was very upsetting. Today is just very hard to take seriously. I understand why at the time it was, but with everything that has come since, a lot of the shock factor and a lot of the disturbing quality has been lost. Oh yeah, I think people are very hard to shock these days, especially with like the horror movies. You see them go to, in some cases, kind of ridiculous lengths to just, okay, how can we scare them? How can we make them sick? How can we really make them feel uncomfortable. I feel like that's gotten a lot harder now. It has, yeah. And I think that a big part of that is that people lost a sense of tone because there are still movies from that era that are genuinely upsetting. I mean, this thing is roughly contemporaneous with The Exorcist, and there's still stuff in The Exorcist that's upsetting. Uh, 
my wife is a hardened horror movie viewer, grew up watching horror films with her grandmother, just the like darkest, like nastiest, like sleaziest stuff to come out of the 1980s. She she watched the original Friday the 13th movies with her grandmother growing up. And she but she had she had missed out on The Exorcist. And shortly after we got married, I showed my wife The Exorcist. And there's the scene where I, I it's been a couple of years since I've seen it. I want to say it's where Reagan's mom comes into the room at a certain point. And it's it's the very first time that we hear the demons speak through Reagan. And the very first time that voice came out of that little girl, my hardened horror movie veteran wife just like grabbed the sheets and just responded, oh shit. And it's, <clears throat> it's, there's no blood, there's no gore, there's nobody getting chopped up, but it's just the tone and the ambiance of that scene and the incongruity of this voice coming out of this child. And I, I love the slasher boom in the 80s. I have a very big, affectionate, nostalgic soft spot for it, but I feel that that kind of pushed horror movies off the tracks of being really legitimately scary because there was this over-reliance now on sexy teenagers getting chopped up versus tone, atmosphere, ambiance, stuff that's really going to get under the audience's skin. I definitely agree because actually um, um, my girlfriend and I just watched Halloween Ends the other night and... Yeah, gore-wise, that movie is really over the top. But story-wise, we're like, yeah, this isn't a great movie. I mean, I, I'm not a movie maker, so I don't want to come down too hard on people. But I felt like, yeah, this story-wise, uh, they've done they've done better, you know? And But but gore-wise, it's absolutely fantastic. And I definitely agree. There's that slasher boom where it's like, okay, how can we make people physically ill? Okay, let's have this guy get his spine ripped out. Let's have this girl get her, like, tongue ripped out. You know, what can we do to push out that envelope? And now it's like, well, what do we do exactly? Yeah, and, and I, I love the 80s as a, uh era of horror cinema. But you go back and you watch the movies from that time, and I think that maybe with the exception of The Thing and The Shining, the adjective that people are going to use to describe 80s horror cinema is probably fun. And it produced a lot of really enjoyable movies. I've got a ton of horror of 80s horror DVDs on my uh, bookshelf, but are they scary? No. They're fun, they're over the top, they're gory, they're a great Friday night popcorn flick watch. But do they get under my skin? Do they make me feel afraid in any way? Do they like trigger that primal response that I feel makes us fall in love with horror in the first place when we're very young? No, it's it's not there. Hmm. One thing that I think in terms of like how you make horror movies really creepy is you look for those little things. Like there's that new movie Smile that um, that was recently released. That one I felt, and just from watching the trailer, looks really fucking creepy because it's just people smiling creepily at the camera. It's like, yep, I, I, I want to watch this. It's going to scare the hell out of me. But just that one little thing is enough to ugh, weird me out. The last horror movie that really got me... <clears throat> And had a tremendous impact like that was Sinister. Mm, yes. Sinister. Yep. Sinister. Like, 
I knew nothing about that movie going into it. I knew that it was a horror movie. I knew that the guy who had done Hellraiser Inferno was involved, and I have a lot of affection for that. I feel like that's one of the few post-Hellraiser to Hellraiser franchise installments that did something right. And so it's like, okay, I'm going to give this movie the benefit of the doubt. Let's go in and watch this. And I'm sitting there in the theater, have no idea whatsoever what to expect. And the screen comes up, and it's that opening snuff film with the family with their bags over their heads getting hanged by the tree. And just like the bottom drops out of my guts. And I'm like, this is an actual horror movie. Mm -hmm. And I have stumbled upon something beautiful and terrible. Yeah. I see that. I've seen that movie too. Um, I think there's one scene where like all the victims have these creepy, just like rictus grins on their faces. That's like towards the end of it, I believe. And yeah, like it was those like little things. I think there's one scene where the two characters are talking and the demon is behind one of them. It kind of just like edges into view. It's like, oh shit. So there's, yeah, that one I thought was a really good horror movie because it didn't, it, it wasn't tropey at all. Um, it didn't have any real gore to speak of, frankly. And it was really good at just painting that. It was really good at creating that constant atmosphere of, okay, what's next? Yes. And that's <clears throat> that was something that I wanted to bring to this story. Okay. I wanted to create this sense of unsafeness for the reader. Nice. All right. Uh, I, don't, I don't think anybody dies in this book until maybe the halfway, probably three quarters point. It's not a book that relies on a kill count. It's not a book that relies on a gore quotient. I really just wanted to make the reader feel unsafe delving into this world. How do you make the kills count? How do you make it more than just, oh, we're wiping out some cannon fodder? You've got to have a sense of who's getting killed. It can't just be cannon fodder. You do a Friday the 13th movie. Friday the 13th 3 is a perfect example of this for me. None of the kills in Friday the 13th lands because we have no idea who these people are. Literally just 10 minutes into this movie, a van shows up and picks up a girl we've never seen before. And there's just all these random people in the back of this van and they go someplace and then they all die. Why do I care? Mm. I have no sense of them as real people. I have a sense of them as movie characters. A great parallel with this is the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We spend a nice amount of time with these kids in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We don't learn a lot about them. We don't like get these deep involved backstories, but we see them living and interacting as friends, as real people. And despite the fact that we don't have these deep involved backstories on them, we have a sense of them as friends, as people who have lived lives and experiences up to this point. We know that these Two of these kids are siblings, and they grew up in this area, and their family's grave might have been vandalized, and they're going to check that out. And this girl is involved in tarot and astrology, and we have a sense of them as real, living, breathing human beings with lives and experiences. And when we see them die, it's sudden, and it's shocking, and it's perfunctory, and it is upsetting. Versus Friday the 13th, where... Why is there a middle-aged hippie couple where the guy looks like Tommy Chong hanging out with, like, these, like, teenage kids and, like, oh, this kid is a special effects artist, maybe, and he's involved here somehow? And it's just, like, 
you have this sense of you are not in this story. You are on your couch. You are in the movie theater watching this. I think it's worse when the characters are annoying. When you're when you're like, you know what? I hate this person. I'm rooting for the bad guy. Cut their fucking head off. Yes. And that's actually something that I did play into with this is the kills that happen in the book only happen after I have got let the reader get to know these people. I've established them. You know who they are. You know what they're about. We've seen them interact with one another. We have seen them develop character traits and personalities. You have a sense of them as real people. And then I took it a step further. I just made them the most reprehensible pieces of shit I could. I don't do not want anybody going into this book to like any of these characters. It was a uh, it was a, a not a manifest. It was part of my manifesto writing this book that as part of creating this unsafe world and this unsafe atmosphere for the reader that they would not just feel threatened by the world in which they are entering by opening this book, but they would feel threatened by every single character that they encounter. And there is no safe place for them to go. And there is no safe character for them to hold on to. Everybody here is dangerous. Everybody here is bad. And when they die, I wanted the reader to feel a sense of relief when it happened. It's this very interesting phenomenon I see happen, and uh, I partially came of age in the era of the prestige television drama featuring the dark, troubled, anti-hero, villain protagonist character. Uh, Sopranos, Breaking Bad, The Shield. I don't personally count Mad Men. I think Don Draper is a decent guy. But, uh, you know, these, these, these characters who are violent and toxic and destructive and fascinating uh and there are in character to these worlds and the the interesting thing i I kept seeing happen watching these shows especially with breaking bad is the creators go into these shows saying i want to show how bad this guy is and he is an interesting protagonist and i want the viewer to enjoy watching them but I don't want the viewer to sympathize with them and I don't want the viewer to become attached to them. And I don't want to show them as a good person. And going, going back to what I said a second ago, you really see this happening with breaking bad. These, these creators just all against their will, just helplessly fell in love with these characters. You get to the final episode of breaking bad and you are rooting for Walt to win and it's like, yeah, kill those Nazis. Yeah, you know, take these fuckers down. And uh, you, you keep seeing this happen again and again where they're tr- trying to show this, like, destructive villain protagonist character. But you can just tell the creator can't help themselves. Uh, there's, this, there's, there's, this, there's this page, TV Tropes. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of... The TV tropes is do not do this cool thing. And it's for stuff like Scarface or Goodfellas, where it's like ostensibly the moral is crime does not pay, but crime looks really cool in Goodfellas and Scarface up until like the last 30 minutes of the movie. But 
if you watch a three hour film, it's two and a half hours of fancy clothes and uh, sexy cars and good looking people. And then the final 30 minutes is, and he also happens to die at the end. A lot of readers are going to, a lot of viewers are going to walk away from that thinking to themselves, sure, he died at the end, but he died after all of the sexy cars and fancy clothes and lifestyle that I can only dream of and fantasize. And so in writing this, I wanted to try and do sincerely what so many other pieces of media end up stumbling on. And that is have a story about a villain protagonist and about dangerous, bad people who never become sexy, who never become glamorous, who never become valorous. And from start to finish, it is just this descent into this dangerous, destructive world that you do not want to be a part of. And probably I think the most reprehensible character is your main character, Andy Lou. He is a junkie, he's a voyeur, he's a degenerate. And the only reason why the more dangerous badasses of 42nd Street even tolerate him is because he is the projectionist at the Colossus Theater. And he's the one who gets his hands on this, as you mentioned, rare, one-of-a-kind, dark-as-fuck movie. And everyone wants to get their hands on it. Everyone wants to snag it. He won't let it go. And I imagine he's going to go to some pretty crazy lengths to keep it in his hands. Tell me about the creation of Andy. How'd you make such an absolute scumbag? I got to tell this story so that I don't absolutely terrify everybody listening to this podcast. So the, the seeds of Andy Lou started out as my own worst case scenario. Uh, when I was uh, about 21, 22 years old, I had uh, recently moved to Texas with my family. I had started going to college. Uh, my brother had just moved out of the house. Uh, he and I are very close. Uh, he was my best friend in high school. Uh, suddenly he's gone. My mother got diagnosed with leukemia, uh, got put in uh, MD Anderson Hospital in Houston into the isolation wing. My dad started working 12-hour days in order to make more money to help pay for hospital bills. Uh, my girlfriend and I had just recently broken up. Uh, it was a, a mutual breakup where, surprisingly, at that age, we were able to sit down and realize we like one another, we care for one another, but we're just not right for one another. And if we stay together, we're not going to be happy. And so we we amicably parted ways. And I'm always been very difficult at making new friends, at meeting new people. And so here I am in a new state, in a new school, no brother, no friends, no girlfriends. Uh, I've always been very close with my mother. Suddenly she's in the hospital. She may die. I don't really see my dad anymore. Uh, Functionally, I'm living by myself in this very isolative lifestyle. And I was working as a theater projectionist at a Cinemark theater in suburban Houston. Uh, I was one of the the last, this last generation to actually be trained in splicing film and like hooking up film reels and making sure that the reel didn't drop and threading film, yada, yada, yada. And I would go to class and I would go to work. And I had very little free time and very little free time I had was spent just alone by myself sitting around the house watching horror movies. And 
I had actually gotten to the the taxi driver point where I had uh, taken this cardboard theater standee that they were going to throw out and dragged it up to the projection booth and was using it as an exercise mat and was actually living the 50 sit-ups every day, 50 push-ups every night. And like I'm, I'm five foot 11, I got down to like 160 pounds. I barely saw the light of day. My skin was the color of printer paper. And I was just living this really unhappy, really unfulfilling, lonely, isolative lifestyle. And in addition to running the projectors, I would also go down and help the theater ushers clean up after uh, late shows, after uh, movies when they were getting ready to close the theater down. And I just remember this one night I get home. It's like probably like one o'clock in the morning. Uh, I've run the final movie of the night. I've helped the ushers clean up. I'm in my uniform. I'm still just like covered in filth from this like paper thin garbage bag splitting open on me, trying to chuck it into the dumpster. Dad's asleep. There's nobody to talk to. And I go into the room of our house where the computer was and where I had my bookshelf with all my movies. And I slumped down into this desk chair, just feeling exhausted and alone and tired. And I'm looking at my bookshelf and just everything on there are horror movies. Uh, if you look at my bookshelf today, I've got much more of an admixture of uh, art films, comedies, dramas, gangster movies, exploitation movies, the whole shebang. But at this time, I had entered this period probably because of what was going on in my life, where essentially all I was watching were horror and exploitation movies. And this had actually kind of become the self-defeating cycle because I would try and make new friends. I would try and ask girls out. I would try and build relationships and I would start to make these tenuous connections with people. And you have to remember going back to the very early 2000s before horror had this prestige bang, before Jordan Peele and Ari Aster and other people made horror this cool thing. We're kind of in this window where it's a little bit subversive. And it was a constant stumbling block for me, especially living in uh, in, in Texas at the time. That Eventually, the, the, the topic would come up, well, what kind of movies do you like? Oh, I really love horror movies. I really love exploitation movies. Have you heard of this movie XYZ? And it would put people off. And it would make them a little bit uncomfortable. And they would think, maybe this guy has something wrong with him. Maybe there's something a little bit sick about this guy, that this is like what his favorite stuff is. And it was like this, this dis distancing, isolating factor for me. And I'm sitting here in this chair, looking at the shelf full of horror movies, all alone at one in the morning. And I think to myself, what is going to become of you? And that was the seed for Andy Liu. And Andy Liu became this worst case scenario for me just this elderly, alone, decrepit, isolated guy whose entire world, whose entire mind, whose entire soul has been consumed by and then warped by an all-pervasive love of horror and exploitation movies. And that's where he kicked off. Wow. So you can say inspired by a true story. Sort of, yeah. <laughs> and... As time went by, you know, I mean, I'm married now. I've been married for 13 years. I have a circle of friends. I have social relationships. And so thankfully, I didn't, ex I did not turn into Andy Lou, but uh, I held on to that idea and this germ of this human monster. 
And what really propelled the story into life was two things. I, I really loved going to, I used to love going to revival showings. Uh, I live in Dallas now and we've got the Texas Theater. Uh, it's the theater where Lee Harvey Oswald was arrested after the Kennedy assassination. And they uh, still show movies there and they uh, especially show revival films on 35 millimeter. And they'll show, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 35 millimeter, The Shining in 35 millimeter, uh, you know, all these great things. I had to stop going because there's this particular strain of moviegoer who is this obnoxious, I'm better than you, I am so cool, my favorite band is somebody that you've never heard of because you suck ass, holier-than-thou hipster, for whom nothing is sincere, nothing can be appreciated in its own merits, and they would come to these revival screenings and heckle them like you're in an episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000. A couple of years ago, my wife, for my birthday, takes me to see Texas Chainsaw in restored 35 millimeter, not just a 35 millimeter print, restored 35 millimeter print. It's one of my favorite horror movies. She surprised me with this. Never seen it on the big screen before. And the footage is beautiful. I didn't realize that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre could actually have like these beautiful shots. I had not seen the sky so blue in any version of Texas Chainsaw I've seen. I am seeing one of my favorite movies for the first time, essentially. And there are this group of assholes sitting behind me who every time Leatherface kills somebody, they start making orgasm sounds and moaning and writhing in their seats and then just like laughing hysterically. And talking about oh, it's so cheap. <laughs> I can see the I can see the rope holding her up in the meat hook. So cheap. Santa Sangre, uh, Hodorowsky, Santa Sangre, restored 35 millimeter prints. People laughing their asses off when, when the arms come off. Passion of Joan of Arc of all things. Fucking Passion of Joan of Arc. We've got these like super close-ups on this tormented girl who is about to be burned at the stake. This is one of the most intense movies I've ever seen. And there's people in there giggling, it's so cheap. Oh, look, it's so cheap. And it's just like nothing is sincere for them. Nothing can just be appreciated. Art cannot be taken on its own merit. It's just like everything is so ironic. And at the same time, on the other end of the spectrum from these people are the internet trolls, who because they love a piece of media, feel that they own that media and God forbid you do something with that media that they don't like. When I was originally working on Beast of 42nd Street, it was kind of at the fever pitch of both Rick and Morty becoming a cultural phenomenon and uh, The Last Jedi. And I'm watching these Twitter feeds of people insisting, we are not going to let Rick and Morty get ruined by letting women into the writer's room. And this show will not be destroyed by a bunch of bitches coming in and ruining a piece of pure entertainment. And then other threads where they're, they're terrorizing, what was her name? That, that poor lady who got like just run off of Twitter just because she was in The Last Jedi. You know who I'm talking about. Yeah, uh, yeah. She, uh, she played, she played um, uh, Rose Tycho, one of the characters. Rose, yes. Yeah, in the second and third movies. Yeah, she just got 
run off of her social media because people couldn't stand it. Oh, God forbid a a woman should be a lead in a movie and direct the plot and the story. God for fucking bid. Yes. yes. And so I just saw this like broad like toxicity in fan culture. Mm-hmm. And it seemed that Andy Liu would be the perfect character to explore this. Um, when I was in college, uh, as I started to kind of get out of this funk, my my mom thankfully recovered from leukemia. She got out of the hospital. She went into remission. I started dating my now wife. Uh, I started like hanging out with people. And I started to write these short stories about the employees of a grindhouse theater on 42nd street in the 1970s and i made andy lou one of the minor antagonists in these stories and he was never a main character but he would just like pop up as the uh as, as the requisite creep uh because i even back then i was still like reaching out to people on city data doing research wanting to build these stories and every single person who lived in new york city especially in Times Square in the 70s and early 80s, knew an Andy Lou. They would all eventually tell me about their Andy Lou and this like creepy, unpleasant, standoffish guy who was a little bit too interested in violent movies and also invariably in a lot of these stories who who would pull his junk out at random in front of you. It was really unsettling to me how many people unconnected to one another just had random flasher stories about living in 70s New York. There was a weird flasher epidemic going on. And so it was like Andy Liu is the perfect character through which to explore the idea of the requisite creepy guy in late late 70s New York. And with this whole toxic fan culture I saw arising at this particular point in time, it was like, of course, Andy would be one of these guys. And so I fuse those elements together, and that's what really solidified the Andy that exists now in Beasts of 42nd Street. So who do you think we're rooting for? Because obviously it's not Andy. You know, he's just a complete, like, human piece of shit, basically. The people around him are no better. So whose side do you get on? You're rooting for yourself to get through the book. Ah, I really wanted to do, like, we go back to this idea of the character you're not supposed to root for that you end up rooting for. Uh, Taxi Driver. Taxi Driver is a movie about a guy who today would be a mass shooter. Travis Bickle would not be walking into a whorehouse today. Travis Bickle would be walking into a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. to talk about freeing the children from the pedophile sex ring and then shooting the place up. But you watch Taxi Driver. We how many of us watch Taxi Driver and we're rooting for Travis at the end? And despite Martin Scorsese and Paul Schrader's best efforts, we're on Travis's side at the end and we want to see this guy succeed and he's shooting up this whorehouse and we're cheering. And so it was part of my my manifesto for myself with this to do Taxi Driver where you don't cheer for Travis, to do Breaking Bad where you don't cheer for Walt. If you're cheering for anything, it's for yourself to get through this and to see these guys go down. I want to talk a little bit about New York City because this is the setting for this book. And it was also the setting for your last book, Our Lady of the Inferno. Uh, Why this place? What about it, especially in that time period, holds such a place in your heart? So going back to what I talked about before, Bill Landis and Michelle Clifford's Sleazoid Express. 
Uh, I read this book when I was probably about 17 years old or so, and it just blew my mind. Uh, I spent the first several years of life in St. Louis, and then my family moved to a town called Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, when I was 11 years old. Uh, my dad worked for the phone company, and for whatever reason, the Y2K project for Southwestern Bell was based out of Tulsa, and Broken Arrow was a suburb of Tulsa, and dad got put on the Y2K project. And whatever image went through your mind when I said Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, is probably correct. Uh, in the 90s, this place was the sticks. Uh, today, it's like the fourth largest city in the state. They put a highway through it in the early 2000s and it exploded overnight. But back in the day, I literally drove through a cow pasture every day to get to school. One of the big teenage hangouts and pastimes was to go to the indigenous people's tobacco stand and buy cut rate uh, inexpensive tobacco and then like hang out in the field behind the tobacco stand and smoke. This was the cutting edge of social life in Broken Arrow or hanging out under an overpass and screaming at cars or going to the family-friendly pool hall that got shut down. And this was life in Broken Arrow. And I read Sleazoid Express, and it just blows my mind. I did not know what an exploitation movie was. I did not know what a grindhouse theater was. I did not know that places like Times Square or 42nd Street could or did exist. And not just that these movies and these theaters existed, but that they were these hubs for these subcultures and these communities that grew up around them. And that there was this entire sort of city of the damned that gravitated around movie theaters in this one very geographically isolated part of a major American city. And it was kind of its own fiefdom where it operated by its own rules and the rest of the city just kind of was hands off and left it alone. And it was this battle zone where the people there sort of governed themselves and like ran life according to their own terms. And it's all built up around movie theaters. And as a teenage budding cinephile, that just blew my mind. And I've just been fascinated by the idea of 42nd Street and late 70s, early 80s New York ever since. Is 42nd Street still like that today? <laughs> okay, so this is great. So when uh, Our Lady of the Inferno, my very first book, won the Independent Publishers uh, Award for Horror for 2019, 2018, and I got flown to New York to go to the award ceremony at the Copacabana. And while I was up there, decided I'm going to visit the real life locations for my book because uh, not just uh, not just 42nd Street, but every location in Our Lady of the Inferno, just like Beast of 42nd Street, every location in Beast of 42nd Street is based on a real place. And I researched the geography, how you would get from this location to this location if you were living there at the time, what the footpath would have been, what intersection it would have been on, yada, yada, yada. And so while I'm up there, I go to 42nd Street. And uh, Beast of 42nd Street is a spiritual prequel to Our Lady of the Inferno in that they both center around the Colossus Theater. Uh, the Colossus Theater is the hangout 
for my heroine in Our Lady of the Inferno, and it's the theater where Andy Lou works in Beast 42nd Street. And I based the Colossus on an actual movie theater called The Roxy on 42nd Street. Uh, in the early 1980s, the Roxy was converted from one giant auditorium into four tiny auditoriums. They uh, partitioned it off and uh, put in smaller screens. And what they would do was they would show both new first-run movies. And then also, this was the dawn of the VCR era, the Roxy bought VCRs and would hook VCRs up to projectors in a couple of these four auditoriums, and they would project old movies on VHS. And so you could go, say, circa 1982 and catch Jaws on one screen and then go watch, say, Top Gun next door. And that was just a really fascinating idea for me. And uh, the great thing about their business model was the, the theater owners had a deal with a VHS distributor. They would buy these uh, movies inexpensively, and you could actually buy the VHSs at the concession stand. And like you could go, say, watch Jaws, and then go to the concession stand, buy a popcorn, and then they've got copies of Jaws sitting on the concession stand, and you can buy them. And so that seemed to be the, the the perfect place to set these stories where I could just like name drop any movie I wanted to because they they theoretically could have been showing it there. And the Roxy was also notorious as one of the sleaziest theaters on 42nd Street. They had a problem with customers going into the bathroom and finding a, a, a dead person OD'd on the toilet. Uh, and Michelle Clifford talks in the Sleazewood Express book about how she had a deal with the guy who ran the concession stands that he would let her jump the concession stand and go into the employee bathroom so that she didn't have to risk going into the women's room and, and finding a, a dead woman on the toilet. And so this is this theater that I, I base these stories on. Today, it's Ripley's Believe It or Not, specifically the Madame Tussauds wax museum portion of Ripley's Believe It or Not is where the Roxy used to be. Just a few doors down where the Lyric Theater used to be, they're showing a nonstop run of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. And this is 42nd Street today. Not quite the same place you paint in the story, is it? Not at all. <laughs> it was startling to me you know, doing all this research, a buddy of mine, Ron Rochia, at one time uh, was the owner of the largest collection of horror movie trailers in the United States. He was a grindhouse theater projectionist between the 70s and 80s, and he was a tremendous resource for me in researching the story. And would just tell me all these tales of his time on 42nd Street and talks to me about he's standing on the sidewalk in front of... Ron's going to kill me for not remembering the name of this theater. But he's standing in front of this theater. He was friends with the manager. He used to get reels from this guy. And they're out on the sidewalk. And the manager of this theater, he tells me, is about 350 pounds. And this kid runs up to him and, like, rams into him. And then just keeps running. And the manager realizes two things. The first thing is his wallet's gone. The second thing is, is that he's been stabbed, but he got stabbed right in the flab of his stomach so that even though like a three inch knife has just gone into him and he's now gushing blood, he didn't really feel it. 
And so Ron, you know, helps get this guy to a hospital. The guy lives. It's a superficial wound. Uh, but this guy just not, not just got pickpocketed, but got stabbed with a three-inch knife and didn't even bat an eyelash about it. And just like waiting to get to the hospital with Ron was like bitching about receipts at the theater because this was not the first time this had happened to him. Because that was just 42nd Street. Oof. I go there in 2019 after the ceremony at the Copa. I'm hanging out with some other writers. We eventually break off. I'm not tired yet. I decide I'm going to walk until I get tired. I'm wandering around this place two o'clock in the morning in a sports coat and tie. Not a single damn person bothers me. And I'm just thinking to myself how things have changed. Yeah, I get the vibe that you would have been long dead if you were there. Oh. Yeah, like like you, oh, like, yeah. like you would have gone halfway down the street but before someone like cut your throat and took everything you had. I, I'm tough, but I I'm tough, but I ain't '70s New York tough. <laughs> I don't think anyone is these days. <laughs> I don't think anyone these days is '70s New York tough, unless you grew up in the area in the '70s. That's the only exception yeah. there. Where do you go from here? I mean, this book is intense in so many ways. How do you top yourself for the next book? I don't I don't think I do. Uh, I went dark with this book. I went to an incredibly dark place with this book. And I think that I went as dark as I can or even wants to go. Uh, I wanted to write something that was a throwback to the politically subversive and transgressive horror literature of the 1980s when the splatterpunk movement was at its peak, uh, something that was truly, genuinely, tonally upsetting and disturbing. And I personally feel that I did that. And so that's been accomplished. And so now I move on to the next thing. Uh, Actually, the work in progress that I've got going right now is something completely different. It is a uh, House of Leaves style multi-perspective panopticon of the horror and exploitation film industry between the 1960s and the 1980s. And it is a faux oral history of a incomplete exploitation movie whose production was shut down in the, in the mid-1980s. And it's still a horror story. Uh, supernatural elements are still involved, but it is more of a tongue-in-cheek love letter to the sort of carney esque world of 60s to 80s exploitation filmmaking. Ooh. Uh, but in term... Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Ooh, I, li- I like that. That sounds good. It, it is a project that I have had in mind for years. I came up with this when I was 19 years old and started trying to write it and realized you are way out of your depth as a 19-year-old kid. You do not have the life experience the research information or the writing experience to tackle a project this complex. And finally last year, I felt that I got to the point as a writer and as a person where I'm ready to tell this story. And I pitched my agent on it and she was really excited. And she said, go ahead and write this thing and then bring it back to me when you're done. And that's what I've been in the process of since last fall. Excellent, excellent. All right. 
Well, Preston, man, thank you so much for joining me. This has been so much fun to talk about. I I kind of wish I was I kind of wish I was around for this time period now because it sounds like such an absolute insane roller coaster. But damn, it sounds interesting. It was insane. So this is the object lesson. This was the this was kind of the encapsulation of this world in this time. Bill Landis, who wrote this Lizard Express book, uh, lived and worked on Forty Second Street. Uh, Bill was a child genius. Uh, he had graduated uh, college when he was 16. He had a double master's degree by the time he was 21. He was working for Merrill Lynch when he was 22 as one of the first generation of people to use desktop computers in the workplace and was running algorithms to determine good stock investments. And this was what he would do by day. And then he would get off of work and immediately head down to 42nd Street by night work as a projectionist in a Times Square grindhouse theater. And then when he got the call, show up to the porno set because Bill Landis was also Bobby Spector, porn star. And he used the money that he was making from his sideline as a porn star to finance the magazine that he was publishing. And this was just sort of de rigueur on 42nd Street. Like nobody blinked learning this. And Bill would just like tell somebody, my name is Bill Landis. I work for Merrill Lynch, but you might also know me as the porn store Bobby Spector. And somebody was just like, oh, cool. Yeah, I've seen some of your movies. You want to go shoot up? And it was just like, that was just the world of 42nd Street. It was like anything just about could and did happen there. And it was just an open air insane asylum. And on that note, we bring this episode to a close, everyone. Uh, certainly get your copy of Beasts of 42nd Street. And where do folks go to learn more about you and check out the work? Uh, I really don't have a lot of a web presence other than Twitter, where I'm uh, at Preston Vossel, uh, P-R-E-S-T-O-N-F-A-S-S-E-L. And you can find me there. Excellent. All right. Well, definitely looking forward to checking this book out and everything else that you know comes after, because this is some absolutely amazing stuff. Thank you for having me. Hey guys, what's going on? This is Brian Murphy from One Time Mountain, and you're listening to Citywide Blackout with Max Bowen. Rock on! And that brings this episode to a close. Thanks to everyone for listening, and be sure to follow the show on Facebook at Citywide Blackout and Twitter and Instagram at Citywide Max. You can reach me at citywidemax at yahoo.com to suggest a guest or submit music for the Blackout Collection playlist. You can find the show wherever you check out your favorite podcasts, and new episodes are aired every Saturday at 10 p.m. EST on Boston Free Radio. That's all for now, and I'll see you next time.